Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday program for the Dhamma Vinaya Order. So this morning, I'm going to give a talk uh, based on a couple of discourses from the Kanda Vaga, from the Samyutta Nikaya. So last week, I just gave a general overview introduction to the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, and now I'm going to dig in to specific discourses. Um, so let me share my screen here. Okay, so this um, this website is Sutta Central, and it is um, developed by Ajahn Sujato, who is a um, Australian monk in the Thai forest tradition. And so it has um, the full uh, Tipitaka in from the Pali Canon. So you can see the Sutta Pitaka, the basket of discourses, Vinaya Pitaka, the basket of law, and the Abhidhamma Pitaka, which is the more in-depth systematic um, analysis of the discourses. Okay, and so then if you go into the basket of discourses, you can see here's the collections. So in the Pali canon, you have the main collections are the Digha Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya, Samyutta Nikaya, Anguttara Nikaya. And then you also have the Kudaka Nikaya and kind of a miscellaneous grab bag here. So Digha Nikaya means the long discourses, which it says here, uh, Majjhima middle length, Samyutta means um, linked or connected discourses. And then Anguttara Nikaya, numbered discourses. And so the idea is that the, co the collections have discourses that are similar to each other um, based on different categories. So the long discourses, it has long discourses. <laughs> uh, the middle length has middle discourses. Um, so as I mentioned Ajahn Sujata's research, he compared the Pali canon with other, other early canons, and he found that there's significant overlap between the Samyutta Nikaya and um, the Samyukta Agama, which is from the um, Sarvastivada school, and then there were two other schools that he found overlap. And his conclusion was that the overlap in the Samyutta Nikaya seems to be pointing to a common um, ancestral branch of core teachings um, before the tradition spread into different places and, and went into different languages. And then once it got into those places, it ca the, the canons continued to develop, um, but that's why you don't have the overlap then um, in, the, in the later stuff that got added in. Okay, so... So he's arguing then that this Samyutta Nikaya is the oldest um, discourse. So you can see here, he, this is the um, Pali canon Samyutta Nikaya. Here's the Samyukta Agama, which is a Sanskrit one. Here's another one. So the, basically there were like multiple Sanskrit versions that got translated into Chinese. And so he's got um, all of those collected here. Um so it's pretty amazing work that he's done. Um, but anyway, we're going to be zooming in on the Pali Samyutta Nikaya. So here you have, this is the um, the different collections that are inside the Samyutta Nikaya. 
So here it is on Suta Central. Um, the other way you could look, one other way you could look at it is you can get Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. So this is the Connected Discourses translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, and it comes, if you ordered it as actual books, it comes as two uh, books. Um, and one reason it's so thick is because Bhikkhu Bodhi has so much um, introductions and analysis, commentary, notes, etc. Um, if you took out all of his commentaries and notes, it could probably shrink to one book. And so I like to think if if there ever is a Bible in Buddhism, it's probably this Samyutta Nikaya. Uh, we it would be good to get a, a version that just has the text itself and doesn't have all the other stuff because then it it could condense into one book. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi has just published um, a book that is um, discourses taken from the Samyutta Nikaya. So he's 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 just published uh, greatest hits from the Samyutta Nikaya, um, but I've gone through it a little bit, and it seems like um, there's still a division between what I think of as um, the Sri Lankan commentary tradition um, that he's part of with Buddhist Publication Society, Nyanapanakatera. There was a whole bunch of Western monks that went to Sri Lanka and were translating um, polytext into English. And that Sri Lankan group also has a connection with the Burmese Mahasi Vipassana lineage, um, which is the lineage that's behind Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, um, and that whole um, branch, we could say, of Buddhism in the U.S., um, so that seems to be one school of interpretation. Um, and then there's, I see at least two other branches that have been left out that um, are the Burmese Vipassana lineage of Lady Sayadaw, which also includes um, Goenka, who's the most well-known popular Goenka Vipassana. Um, and then the Thai forest tradition, which you have monks and nuns, such as Ajahn Sujato, Tani Sarobiku, Ajahn Sumedho. Um, so I see that as another school of thought, though that and and that's kind of been left out, basically. Um it hasn't been uh taken up as much in Western academia and in terms of um publishing and things like that. Um it's kind of been sidelined. Um but I think it's actually very compelling stuff. And I think um, it does represent a breakthrough in terms of understanding. It does seem like there is a distinction between early yogic Buddhism and later scholastic Buddhism. Um, and then an understanding of the Samyutta Nikaya as the oldest discourses. Um, that, that that's Those are new breakthroughs that so far it's kind of been within a small circle of people. It hasn't expanded or spread yet. Um, but I think, uh, I, based on taking classes from Dr. Chu at University of the West and doing some of my own research, uh, it does seem it has a lot of merit and what they've come up with so far has stood up. No, it hasn't been challenged yet. Um, if anything, it's just been ignored because, <laughs> uh, it's upsetting to the more dominant interpretation that's out there. 
Okay, so Bhikkhu Bodhi, even though he's coming from that Sri Lankan scholastic tradition, he he will say and do things that are that will overlap sometimes with Ajahn Sujato and Thai Forest um, um, perspective. Um, so one of the things that both Ajahn Sujato and Bhikkhu Bodhi have said is that the order of the collection here. So here we are in the Samyutta Nikaya. These are the Pali uh, texts. This is the Pali collection. So inside of it, you have different vagas, and the vagas are books. So you've got the book of uh, discourses that are um, verses. Then you got the book that's dealing with causation, which means the links of dependent origination. Then you got a book that deals with the aggregates, meaning the five aggregates. Then you have a book for the six sense bases. And then you have a book um, that's um, about the path, the path of practice. So when Sujato and Bhikkhu Bodhi compared this with the Samyukta Agama, the, the inside the Samyukta Agama, the order is different. The the sequence of the collections is different. And they think that that it actually represents an older order or older sequence. So I, I touched on this last time that um, they think the Samyutta Nikaya represents an uh, interconnected system of teachings based on the Four Noble Truths. And they see the, the collection of the aggregates and the collection of the six sense fields or six sense bases as um, representing the first noble truth. Then the collection on the links of dependent origination here um, as the second and third noble truths. And then the great book or the book of the path as representing the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path. And then the book of verses, um, these are discourses that are collected together because they are shorter um, poetic verses. Um, so all of the discourses, all of the collections contain discourses from uh, monks, nuns, lay men, and lay women. And in this collection of verses, it's shorter poetic verses that are, again, by monks, nuns, lay men, lay women. Um, so this one is not collected by the topic, it's more just collected by the genre, you could say, of, of shorter poetic verses. Um, so anyway, so in the Pali collection, it's put there first. Um, but again, the, the older order seems to be aggregate six and spaces, then the links, then the um, path, and then the verses would just be kind of miscellaneous. It could kind of go anywhere. Okay, so then in each of the books, you have multiple chapters inside of the books. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the Khandavaga, the book of aggregates. Okay, so then, so inside of it are different chapters, and the chapters are called Samyutas. And the first chapter of the first book is named after the book. So the first chapter of the Khandavaga is the Khanda Samyutta. So that means it's the chapter on the aggregates. And so that's the first chapter in, in this book. Uh, and then you have other chapters that 
can be related to the aggregates, but then they can also range into other different topics. Um, so again, as I mentioned in the last last week, I see the Samhita Nikaya as representing a collection from the oral tradition that probably goes back to the time of the Buddha in terms of its core early um, teachings. And then it probably got added onto over time. Um, so my current hypothesis is that it seems representative of the discourses from the oral tradition, starting from the Buddha going all the way to Ashoka um, in India. So that's basically like roughly 400 BC to um, I'm not I'm not the best on my dates, but roughly like uh, 300 to 200 uh, BC. I think that's when Ashoka was um, um, the Mauryan Empire when he came when he was. Um, uh, emperor. Okay, so then, so so one hypothesis I have is that if you just look at the structure of the Samyutta Nikaya, it seems to have the structure of the oral tradition, um, and it's pretty straightforward. And so it seems um, not unreasonable that that was the structure the Buddha set up. Um. And then if you're looking at the first chapter of the first book, or sorry, if you're looking at the first chapter of each book and you look at the first few discourses of each chapter, um, the discourses are pretty straightforward um, and seem like they would be in line with the overall structure. And either the Buddha, it, it's plausible the Buddha could have taught it or whoever is depicted as in the discourse. Um, it's plausible that that could go all the way back to the Buddha or at least be in keeping with um, the original kind of core oral collection. Okay, so that's just all kind of an introduction. So now we'll get into um, the first two discourses in the Khandavaga. Okay, so there's Nakula's father. That's one uh, discourse that we'll talk about. And then the other one is um, at Devadaha. Okay. So you can see here, uh, Sujato has um, different translations. So he's got his translation, and then here's Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Um, it depends on the discourse. Sometimes there's more than, there could be one, two, three, four, five different translations. Okay, so we'll start here with uh, Bhikkhu Sujatos. Okay, Nakula's father. So I have heard at one time the Buddha was staying in the land of the Bhagas on the Crocodile Hill in the Deer Park at Desakala's Wood. Then the householder, Nakula's father, went up to the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side, and said to the Buddha, Sir, I'm an old man, elderly and senior. I'm advanced in years and have reached the final stage of life. My body is ailing and I'm constantly unwell. I hardly ever get to see the esteemed mendicants. May the Buddha please advise me and instruct me. It will be for my lasting welfare and happiness. That's so true, householder. That's so true, householder. For this body is ailing, trapped in its shell. If anyone dragging around this body claimed to be healthy even for a minute, what is that but foolishness? So you should train like this. Though my body is ailing, my mind will be healthy. That's how you should train. 
And then the householder Nakula's father approved and agreed with what the Buddha said. He got up from his seat, bowed, and respectfully circled the Buddha, keeping him on his right. Then he went up to Venerable Shariputra, bowed, and sat down to one side. Shariputra said to him, Householder, your faculties are so very clear, and your complexion is pure and bright. Did you get to hear a Dhamma talk in the Buddha's presence today? What else, sir, could it possibly be? Just now the Buddha anointed me with the deathless ambrosia of a Dhamma talk. But what kind of ambrosial Dhamma talk has the Buddha anointed you with? So Nakula's father told Shariputta all that had happened and said, that's the ambrosial Dhamma talk that the Buddha anointed me with. But you didn't feel the need to ask the Buddha for the further question. Sir, how do you define someone ailing in body and ailing in mind? And someone ailing in body and healthy in mind? Sir, we would travel a long way to learn the meaning of this statement in the presence of Venerable Shariputra. May Venerable Shariputra himself please clarify the meaning of this. Well then, householder, listen and pay close attention. I will speak. Yes, sir, replied Nakula's father. Shariputra said this. And how is a person ailing in body and ailing in mind? It's when an unlearned, ordinary person has not seen the noble ones and is neither skilled nor trained in the qualities of a noble one. They've not seen good persons and are neither skilled nor trained in the qualities of a good person. They regard form as self, self as having form, form in self, or self in form. They're obsessed with the thought, I am form, form is mine. But that form of theirs decays and perishes, which gives rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. They regard feeling as self, self as having feeling, feeling in self, okay, et cetera, et cetera, so that's a repetition. They regard perception as self, same thing, repetition. They regard choices as self. They regard consciousness as self. That's how a person is ailing in body and ailing in mind. And how is a person ailing in body and healthy in mind? It's when a learned noble disciple has seen the noble ones and is skilled and entrained in the teachings of the noble ones. They've seen good persons, are skilled and trained in the teaching of the good persons. They don't regard uh, form as self, self as having form, form in self or self in form. They're not obsessed with the thought, I am form, form is mine. So when that form of theirs decays and perishes, it doesn't give rise to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. And then they go on with the repetition. They regard feel, They don't regard feeling as self. They don't regard perception as self. They don't regard choices as self. They don't regard consciousness as self. That's how a person is ailing in body and healthy in mind. That's what Venerable Shariputra said. Satisfied, Nakula's father was happy with that, uh, with, with what Shariputra said. Okay, so this, the, the core of the teaching then is saying that the five aggregates are not self. And the five aggregates are form, which means the body. Um, and the Pali word is kaya, K-A-Y-A. That's So that's form is body. Then sensation. So the Pali word is vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. Sometimes it's translated as sensation, sometimes feeling. Um, and 
So uh, it, because it can be confused with emotion, I think it's better to translate it as sensation instead of feeling because feeling is kind of ambiguous. Okay. Um, so you have the body, which is made up of the four elements. You have sensation, which is uh, body sensations that are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then you have perception. And so then um, the Pali word is sanya. And perception means uh, recognizing something. So um, the example I usually give is you you're, you see somebody walking in the distance and they get you can't you can't tell who they are at first, but when they get a little closer, you have enough details, and then your mind recognizes, oh, that's uh, such and such person. Um, that moment of recognition is is what perception means. Okay, then you have um, mental formations. The Pali word is sankara. Um, that can mean a lot of things depending on the context in Buddhism, but within within the five aggregates, um, it tends to mean emotion, um, but it also can mean volition. Um, so I like to translate it as intention slash emotion. Uh, so Bhikkhu Sujato, he translated it as choices. Um, so he's kind of going more towards the volition, uh, side of it. Um, but I think of it, I think of it as combination of intention and emotion. Then you have consciousness, which, um, in early Buddhism, there are six consciousnesses, which is the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, um, but also thinking. And so the idea is that consciousness is arising from a sense space coming in contact with a sense object, um, so the eyes with visual form, the ears with sound, etc. Okay, so the core teaching in the discourse then is that these these five aggregates are not self. Um, and so it's interesting because you you have an older layperson who's, who's um, you know, talking about his body decaying. And then he goes to the Buddha. And then the Buddha is saying, um, the five aggregates are not self. And by being around the Buddha saying that, um, Nakula's father feels like he, there's like an, an uh, the ambrosia of the Dharma. He basically got high from the Dharma talk. Let's <laughs> he got high from being near the Buddha, right? So it's not just the Buddha giving the teaching, but it's also coming from his realization that there's some kind of energetic vibe or spiritual vibe going on. Um, so for me, because I I spent time with some gurus in South India that are in Ramana Maharishi's lineage, Um. So I so when I think of the Buddha, I, for me, I can't help but thinking of Ramana Maharishi because I see him as as like a 20th century saint or someone who seemed pretty deeply realized. Um, and so one of his one of his common teachings would be, you know, the the main thing that you have to do is give up the "I am the body" idea, um, meaning the the feeling that the feeling of identification and attachment to the body. Uh, that's the very thing that has to get uprooted in order to awaken spiritually, um, but also to overcome suffering. 
And so sometimes he would say, um, the body itself is a disease. Uh, like, <laughs> um, you have a body and it, it can be relatively well or it can be relatively sick. But ultimately, he's saying, compared to if you uh, awaken spiritually, and so you you awaken to some kind of deeper spiritual ground of being, so that you're no longer identified and attached to the body, um, that 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 identification and attachment, relatively speaking, then is is uh, a disease or it's um, it is suffering. And so by by spiritual awakening to a deeper spiritual ground, then you are no longer um, caught by that suffering of being identified and attached to body and mind as self. So my my feeling then is that the Buddha is speaking from that realization, and then therefore that's um, allowing this uh, Nakula's father to to get this uh, spiritual high from. Um, we could say he's he he's tuning into some deeper spiritual reality that the Buddha has realized, but it's also like resonating some kind of awakened perspective or potential within himself that seems to have helped him um, let go to a certain degree of being identified and attached to the body and mind as self. So it seems then that there is some deeper witnessing witnessing self or. Um, witnessing perspective uh, that's able to be aware of the body and mind without being caught up in it. And so the idea is, is it possible to be resting in that witnessing awareness so then you can allow the five aggregates to come and go without being um, caught up in it, basically. So that's that's my sense of what the teaching is offering. Um, it's interesting because it's a lay man asking the Buddha the question. And so it's you you get to see the lay and monastic community coming together and you get to see um, the usefulness of the Buddha's spiritual awakening, not just for the monks and nuns trying to realize Nibbana, but just for um, the average layperson who's just trying to get through being going through old age and the suffering that's coming with old age, um, that there's a practical application of the Buddha's awakening by him um, speaking from his place of realization. It's like he's he's providing a resource or sharing with um, the layperson. Um, he's giving him a whiff of the awakening, and that's that's having. Uh, a positive impact on on the layperson. Um, and then the discourse also sets up the idea that the Buddha gives the teaching, and then the Shariputra, who's who's the senior disciple, who's who's very good at explaining in more detail what the Buddha meant. Um, which could be it could be an actual relation dynamic that was there from the beginning, but it's for sure is something that the tradition took up over time. Um, so in the discourses, uh, Shariputta symbolically represents someone that will give you the deeper explanation behind what the Buddha taught. Um, okay, so I'm just going to touch on the, the second discourse. I won't go in depth. It'll just be brief, and then we'll open it up for discussion.
Okay, so this is the uh, Devadaha discourse. Okay, so I've heard that at one time the Buddha was staying in the land of the Shakyans, where they have a town named Devadaha. So the Shakyans, that's the clan the Buddha comes from. So he was, he's in his home territory of the Shakyas. Okay, uh, then several mendicants who were heading for the West went up to the Buddha, bowed, sat down to one side and said to him, Sir, we wish to go to a Western land to take up residence there. Uh, but mendicants, have you taken leave of Shariputra? No, sir, we haven't. You should take leave of Shariputra. He's astute and supports his spiritual companions, uh, the mendicants. Yes, sir, they replied. Okay, so I, uh, I won't. I want. I don't want to take up too much time, but it's a very nice discourse. I highly recommend reading it yourself. Um, okay, but uh, so they go. They go up to. They basically go up to Shariputra and they say, "Hey, we're set, we're heading west. Have you got any advice?" The Buddha said, "We should come to you and ask. Do we? Ha do you have any advice?" Um, we wish to go to a western land and take a residence there. Okay, so then uh, this is Shariputra saying, Reverence, there are those who question a mendicant who has gone abroad, astute aristocrats, Brahmins, householders, and ascetics. For astute people are inquisitive. But what does the Venerables' teachers teach? What does he explain? I trust the Venerables have properly heard, learned, attended, and remembered the, te the teachings and penetrated them with wisdom. That way, when answering, you will repeat what the Buddha has said and not represent, not rep, misrepresent him with an untruth. You will, you will explain in line with the teaching, with no legitimate grounds for rebuke, rebuke and criticism. Okay, so then, basically, Shariputra goes on to just repeat the teachings on the five aggregates and says the five aggregates are not self. So you've got uh, the Buddha. And Shariputra in the realm of the Shakyas, which is where the Buddha is from. And so in that territory of Greater Magadha that I talked about last week, that's representing the um, northwest uh, part of Greater Magadha. So they're there in the Shakya clan zone. And then they're talking about going further west. And they're talking about going into a place where there's going to be aristocrats, Brahmins, householders, and ascetics. So we know historically that Buddhism starts in Greater Magadha, and then over time it spread west as the Mauryan Empire spread to the west, and that the the monks and nuns were starting from Greater Magadha, which is also where you had other yogic traditions, the Jains, the Ajivakas, etc. And then with the Mauryan Empire and the spread west, uh, all of these yogic traditions spread west uh, into the cities that were being formed further west. So to me, this reads like a discourse that could be happening within the Mauryan Empire in which you you indeed had monks and nuns traveling west from Greater Magadha, and they were going into a territory that had uh, all kinds of people such as aristocrats, Brahmins, householders, and, and ascetics from other traditions. Um So to me, then it's saying, okay, here, here is uh, one of the Buddha's core teachings. The five aggregates are not self. That's a core teaching from the Buddhist tradition as this yogic lineage from Greater Magadha. 
and that uh, that core teaching, you should take it with you into the West. Um, um, and so it seems like my sense is this, again, it contains the core teaching that probably does indeed go back to the Buddha and Sariputra, but then over time it may have gotten embellished to support um, the spread of Buddhism uh, heading west uh, over time as as um, the Mauryan Empire uh, developed. Okay, so that's my spiel for the two uh, discourses. Um, so now uh, I'd like to open it up to discussion. So um, would anyone like to share uh, what came up for you uh, in hearing hearing me give the talk uh, and hearing of the discourses? Um, so that could be an insight, a comment, a comparison to something else. Um, or if you have questions, um, or if you have some some related topic that you want to throw into the mix. I have one question for context. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever heard about Nakula's father before. So I wonder the significance of, of why not the name of the person, why Nakula's father? So if you can add some context. Right. Um, I don't know enough to say. Uh, <laughs> um, this Okay, so I've been, you know, I've been studying, practicing Buddhism for 30 years, and it's only in the past couple of years that I've realized, I've come across the research on the Samyutta Nikaya, and I've dug into it. Um, so actually, what I've done so far is mainly gone through the first chapter of each book, um, and then also based on Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, introductions, I've I've delved into a few other chapters besides the first chapter of each book. Um, so I don't know enough to say how who Nakula's father is. Uh, I don't know if he's rep if he's in other discourses or is it just this one discourse. Uh, I'm not sure if there's an actual Nakula. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, at this point, all I would say is, oh, it just seems to be someone who was part of the fourfold sangha um, at the time of the Buddha and that people refer to him as Nakula's father. Um, and I, d I don't know enough historically, culturally to say, oh, well, that's just, that's common that people would refer to someone like that. Um, uh, so I plead ignorance. I'd, I don't know. Yeah. Does anybody else have insight into that? Okay. Uh Corey, you have a hand up. Um there is I think a, a, a another version of or another translation where um there's there's uh interplay between Nikula's father and Nikula's mother. Um and so the use of Nikula's father may be in reference to that interplay, the mother and the father, um, but who Nakula is. Um, uh, um, exists uh, in Sanskrit, um, there's a heroic, traditional, big 
What? Your screen is freezing, Corey. I'm not sure where I lost it. Uh, so you want to say it again, Corey? Oh, I said I'm not sure where I lost you guys. I was just saying that um, that Nakula also that name Nakula is also um, uh, used in uh, Indian or Hindu mythology, right? Uh, but I don't. But I don't think it's it's say. I just think it's a you know it's a common name. Mm -hmm. um, I did want to ask a question, John, about the um, your understanding of the difference between the between um, in the kandas the um, when we talk about form, um, sometimes it's referred to as um, kaya or body, and then sometimes um, uh, it's referred to as rupa. Mm -hmm. Um, which I take to I take to be um, kind of a broader like anything that is it, anything that you can visually see has a form. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Um, yeah, poly, the rupa is the poly word for form, and then kaya is the poly word for body, and so. In the five aggregates, it's usually listed as form, and that's presented as rupa. Um, there's one discourse in the Samyutta where the Buddha uh, breaks down each aggregate, and so he says rupa is made up of the four elements. Um, and then kaya is usually part of the four establishments of mindfulness. Um, I see them as relatively synonymous. Um, it's just whether you want to talk about it in the context of five aggregates or the four establishments. Um, then when we talk about Nama Rupa, that's uh, one of the links of the 12 links of dependent origination. Um, and so it's usually talked about then as um, when rebirth occurs, um, the consciousness is moving from the previous lifetime to the present lifetime. And when it when it gets to the present lifetime, um, it lands on Nama Rupa or Nama Rupa is what comes out. Um, and then, but then when you ask, okay, well, what's Nama Rupa? Usually it's broken down as um, the five aggregates again, where Rupa is body. And then the other four aggregates are Nama, which uh, Nama can, it, it can mean name or it can mean um, like psyche, right? Like psyche soma, Nama Rupa. Um, so, and some and some kind of, I think it's later Theravada commentary, they'll talk about, okay, you have the four elements inside of you, but you have the four elements outside of you as well. And so it's it's talking about all of all material form um, that is manifesting both as your body and the outside world, so to speak. Um, so those are, those are mainly the different contexts that I understand that I've seen it being presented as. Right. So in, in this context, we read form as Kaya body, mm -hmm. uh, as the, as the gateway for the senses. Yeah. The, um, 
if you get into the links, um, the the name and form gives rise to the six sense bases. Um, so it's almost like, I guess, name and form is kind of like a like some kind of core base, and then out of that, the six the six sense bases manifest, and then when you have contact between the six sense spaces and the six sense objects, um, that's the next link contact. And then that gives rise to sensation. Um, so my, my working hypothesis is that the, the five aggregates was an existing map uh, at the time of the Buddha uh, amongst the wandering yogis of the time. Um and so it, it it may have been just a common way of mapping out the body and mind. Um, and then, so when the, the Buddha is saying, okay, you, um, you are not, the, the, the five aggregates are not self. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of like a radical distinguishing between conditioned phenomena that arise and pass away. And then by implication, the unconditioned uh, which doesn't arise and pass away. Um, so you could say that he's what he's really getting at is by saying you are not these conditioned things, the implication is that you are the unconditioned. Um, and it gets tricky because when you say you are the unconditioned, the, the unconditioned doesn't uh, is beyond a subject object. It's beyond uh, a self or whatever. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. it also it also seems like a direct yogic instruction in the sense that you know anybody who's spent any time sitting probably most of us here has had that experience of kind of you know you you're meditating on the sense gates and you're going and and then you're meditating on mental objects um you know you're meditating on emotional reactions so you you sort of you know you see this process of sensation um, or, well, yeah, I mean, sensation and then perception, identification of the sensations, um, and then the response or mental, uh, you know, mental activity response in response to that, uh, uh, giving rise to, um, you know, a, a, a series of concepts that again impact your body as sensations. <laughs> And so that cycle of sort of thought, um, and as an instructor, you know, you're you you do want to sort of disabuse people. It's sort of like this isn't the deal, you know. Like you've discovered this thing, you have you know you have a, a perception of the world and an internal response to it, um, and that's pretty amazing. The mind, you know, this this mind, this self that arises. And awareness, the witness state isn't the end goal per se. Yeah, I think um, when you get into the the Magavaga or the the book of the path, uh, and so that gets in more to the mechanics of meditation practice itself. Um, and so in that, it's usually the four establishments as part of the 16 exercises, that that's the real nitty gritty of the Buddha teaching meditation. 
Um, so in there, he doesn't really talk about the five aggregates as much. It's more um, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, um, mindfulness of the heart mind, and then whether or not the heart mind is identifying or attaching with anything. And it's so it's mainly being with sensation and letting go of the reactions to the sensations and then being with awareness itself and letting go of um, the mind uh, grabbing onto something. Um, whereas it seems like the five aggregates, it's more, he's chart, he, it's when he's talking about the first noble truth of just saying, oh, we're identified and attached to body and mind to self. Uh, the five aggregates is, um, he uses the five aggregates and then he also uses the six sense spaces. Those are the two that he talks about when he just talks about the, the basic identifying and attaching to body and mind as self. Um, but when he talks about actual meditation practice that he tends to switch more over to the four establishments within the 16 exercises. Um, so it's more, he's using the aggregates and the six sense spaces just to get the overall message across. Oh, you're identified with these things. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it it seems very real. It seems like that's what's happening. Um, but based on my awakening, that's, that's not true. It's not, it's, there's actually a deeper layer. There's a deeper reality that you haven't awakened to. Um, so it seems like he's just kind of trying to get that general message across. Um, but yeah, in terms of actual practice, it, it it tends to be a more ground up approach where you you know you start with the breathing, then start with then you go to the body sensations, um, and then you're not using the aggregates as much as you're using the links of dependent origination right. to contextualize that experience. Um, so when we when we get to the Nidana Vaga and the Maga Vaga, then um, I'll talk about that. Um, so it's so I, I, this is not to say that the five aggregates is not a useful object of meditation. Um, but it's almost like it's a, it's like a good teaching at the very beginning, just to wrap your head around, okay, this is the general idea. Um, and then it seems like it's a good teaching at the at the very end when when you've reached awareness and equanimity with the sensations, you've reached a place where um, your heart mind is not identifying and attaching to anything. Um, then it seems like, okay, yeah, you could come back to, okay, using the five aggregates map in the present moment, is there anything I'm identifying and attaching to? Um, and then if I'm aware of any of that as habit energy, then I apply this teaching to disrupt that habit energy. That's how I'm, I mean, that's how I'm looking at it as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, you know, when you're teaching, when you're getting, when when you're teaching meditation, you get that initial people get this awareness of this cycle of identification that's surprising to them they get very interested in it you want to move sort of past that into a non-identification but at the same time you know i'm i later on in your practice you end up sort of coming back and um, working with it again I mean, I think that I think your description is a good description of the cycle that I've witnessed within myself, but also 
um, with others. So right. yeah. Okay. Anybody else have a question or comments? Um, I think what comes up to me in this moment as I hear you both speak and contemplating multiple ideas, I think the key uh, in summary of that is the word identification, right? The sutra uh, have this theme of identifying what maybe the problem is, you know, as your Corey's talking about um, as a Dharma t teacher leading meditation, helping others identify. Um, and then I, I think, and also at the end, I heard Corey said, you know, that it's just, that's the first step. So I, I think in hearing you both is me maybe not thinking beyond what's in front of us. And really, we're just talking about the first step, identification of, of, of the awareness of, in this case, you know, uh, Nicola's father identifying, you know, why do I feel this way, you know, and then Buddha saying X and then Sariputta explaining, well, well, this is the difference between when you're aware of this and when you're not aware of this, this is what happens. So, so I, I think the key word, again, is just a longer explanation to identification is what's coming up for me as I hear you all speak. And I can remember, um, and I can't remember exactly when, I just remember it happened, <laughs> um, that at a certain point through practicing meditation, uh, spending time with different teachers, um, it felt like, oh yeah, I was getting in touch with like a witnessing, observing self that was aware of thoughts coming and going, that was aware of emotions coming and going, uh, that was aware of sensations coming and going. Um, and so there could be times when I was sick or times when I was having uh, health problems or whatever. Um, and so I could feel these unpleasant sensations and then there would be this unpleasant emotion. And then there would be a narrative of like, oh, I'm suffering and this sucks. And um, um, or, oh, I'm getting older. I can feel now I'm I'm not as young as I used to be. I can feel the aging taking place. Um but then there was like these moments where, oh, I could realize, okay, those are different thoughts, perceptions, emotions that are arising and passing in my awareness. But there's this awareness itself that doesn't seem to be touched by that. It seems like there's this awareness itself that the other stuff is coming and going in. Um, and if I kind of let go or rest back in that awareness, it's like it it doesn't feel like it's getting old actually <laughs> like yes my body is getting old and yes there are these sensations and emotions happening um but if i let go in that kind of witnessing awareness it was like oh i wasn't i i wasn't taking it on or i wasn't identifying with it making it personal and so there was something about if i identified with it and took it personally it was a feeling of kind of closing down and then those things becoming more real and becoming more heavy. Whereas, oh, if I just if I just let them be there, I'm not trying to get rid of it or suppress it. Um, but if I just let it be there and just kind of try to tune in, oh, is there some there's some witnessing self that's there that doesn't seem to be caught up in the the linear time and space narrative that's happening. I could feel there was like, oh yeah, this kind of peacefulness or this relaxation and um, like an equanimity, basically. Um, 
and so it, it, it feels like yeah that that's the opposite of what our culture our culture worships youth our culture worships it's it, we're all conditioned to buy into all of that stuff and then you're supposed to buy things or do things that uh, <laughs> are going against <laughs> so we're not taught oh yeah there is this spiritual dimension there is this witnessing awareness that's untouched by these things it is possible to let go and rest in that awareness um so that so to me that that that's the experience that the that the discourse is reminding me of from my own experience um so i'm wondering if 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 any of you have any similar experiences or or experiences that are contradicting that um and or experiences working with other people uh, around this um when you say ex- remind me what specific experience oh, you do you have asking? any experience becoming aware of like a witnessing self or observing self that somehow uh, allows you to step back from identifying with something that before you were identified with it and it was like had a feeling of being heavier closed in um but then when there's kind of like a backward step or a letting go into that witnessing awareness it, it it's like oh it kind of it free it frees you up from what you thought was just something that you had to that was an inevitable thing that you just had to be in or i could say have you had moments where that the the narrative of oh i'm this body i'm getting older i'm going to die have you had moments where there's been some deeper awareness that holds that and therefore makes it um less real than it seemed before and you know one of the things that's that's interesting to me about the way that the first um discourse that we read is sort of framed is that it is um specifically in reference to the uh experience of a very normal experience of disidentification from the body that's caused by the body becoming a source, like a site of, uh, like displeasure, mm-hmm. right? Which, um, you know, we all experience at various different ages, um, but isn't an actual disidentification. This is what I, what was interesting to me about what, what Corey was talking about is that we've got these two different words, poly words that might be used for form or body. Um, but there's a sense in which like just not enjoying the aging process doesn't disidentify me from the body. It just identifies me with form. So there's still a like real hard self. I'm just no longer like thinking like, oh, this body is me. It's just it's a, a habitual way that that this guy is talking about. He's already talking about like, well, my body's already sick, so I can't do the things that I want to do. There's already that distinction there, but he's very much still dropped in um, to this untutored um, like identification with form. It's just that, you know, like which which one do we experience most consistently? I think, you know, I have definitely have had times where I'm like, yep, 
body is me. And other times where I'm like, no, body is not me, but I'm still experiencing self at this like kind of first tier level, um, not as pure consciousness and nowhere near close to this like witnessing self. I'm just now mad at my body. So I resent it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I've had that interpersonal experience too, where like I'll be upset with someone that I'm very close to and I will not want to be around them. And I'll make all these excuses about how I don't like them and what's wrong with them. But as soon as like, if they walked in the room and said, I take you back or let's resume our, our, you know, whatever kind of relationship at that moment, I'd be like, cool. And I'd completely forget all of those problems <laughs> that I thought were so fundamental and just resume the relationship. Um, so it's not really a disidentification. So I just, I, you know, I found it very interesting that it's that specific experience that's being alluded to uh, mm -hmm. as the basis, the kind of entry point um, for the conversation, uh, especially given the way that um, I know that, that all three of y'all have talked about this idea of like this process of, having that disidentification and then coming back to the um, identification and that process, which like feels circular, but is probably more like, like a spiral kind of like three-dimensional spiral sort of staircase thing where it, it like, it is the same identification. Um, but I mean, hopefully, you know, we, we cycle, enough that um, like we bring something back with us when we have that experience again. And so it lands a little bit different. It's informed in the way that like, this guy's not, you know, uh, I mean, I didn't get the sense from your reading of the, um, the, you know, anecdote that, um, that there's any kind of sort of deep and unshakable kind of realization but like he's got this idea and it's going to be durable and it and it will to some extent affect the way that that you know i mean if he's already old he's going to continue to age and so every single morning he wakes up and he's like oh this other thing hurts now or i'm having a down day or whatever like then that idea will affect the way that it that it kind of lands um but yeah, in particular with the uh, the two different the ideas of uh, body and form as like slightly different ways that the exact same thing kind of shows up, um, and I and I for sure identified with the kind of vacillation whenever convenient between like oh I'm not this body and and then whenever the body is showing up for me in a way that I enjoy I'm like oh yeah that's what it is. <laughs> So that brings up a couple of things. One, I think there's a paradox between letting go and not identifying with something, which paradoxically results in you actually getting more deeply in touch with it. Um, so I think it's by letting go of identifying with the body and mind um, and resting in this kind of witnessing awareness, paradoxically, you're you're more deeply in touch with your body and mind. Um, but yeah, it's not, there's not the, the, the identifying or buying into it. Um, and then another, I think is looking at the fourfold community of monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, 
um, there's kind of a division of labor in a sense where the monastics get to practice meditation full time and they get to, you know, more likely have a chance to reach a deep level of awakening. Um, but that awakening is part of the fourfold community. And it's so it's part of their job to maintain that awakening and then um, share that perspective and the actual vibrational spiritual vibes that go with it uh, with the lay community. Um, so even though Nikula's father didn't go from, he didn't just start meditating full-time, becoming a monk and attaining Nibbana, it's more like, well, I'm still old and I'm still dealing with this. Um, but now I have a, a teaching or a context to be with it. And um, that's supporting me to go through that. Um, and so I think I think it's interesting also then that within humanistic Buddhism, there's, you know, a big emphasis on interdependence with the natural world. And it's almost taboo to say that you, you're supposed to detach or be a witnessing self, like that's seen as a dissociation or um a running away from something um whereas in this context it seems it's 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 there's a stepping back to some kind of spiritual dimension but um it doesn't come across as dissociation it comes across more as just oh there's a deeper spiritual ground to get in touch with and as a result uh you can step back from what you were caught up with before um, but I could, I could see someone taking that teaching today and say, oh, well, that's spiritual bypass or it's dissociation or whatever. Um, so I guess, I guess it speaks to that within a yogic tradition that, that witnessing awareness can be a pretty grounded thing. It doesn't have to be a dissociated thing. Uh, it can be actually pretty simple and straightforward. It, it doesn't have to be something super fancy, but at the same time, it is fairly profound. Uh, Corey? <clears throat> well, for me, this brings up, you know, as as teachers, um, this sort of brings up like how we approach our audience, who is our audience, and an awareness sort of of like, you know, what is the goal uh, and what's the realistic goal? You know, like often, you know, there's, often sort of like it seems to me that like the dharma is sort of taught in this way where they're going like i'm gonna you know like um you know like the spirit rock model where it's sort of like you're gonna experience what it's like to be a monastic for two weeks and um and you're on the path to enlightenment you know um, but at the end of two weeks and after you've paid all this money, you're going to go back to your job and, um, you know, the insanity of your marriage and all the other things in life. <laughs> um, so it's sort of like, you know, we're going to teach you how to practice to achieve sort of formless enlightenment, but then we're going to spit you back out into the reality of a lay person's life. Um, and then there's something about that too in that context also like there's a lot of like sort of pop psychology which again is good for a lay person um but it's that tension i think in our culture between sort of like what is the aim of the practice and as teachers 
who are our students like what is the goal you know what is the aim of the practice uh, you, you, because like you know this guy comes to you and he's like oh fucking, i'm chronically ill i'm dying i'm sick i'm in pain um you know you, you the presentation could be like well if you really focus really hard you can um sort of let go of your attachment to this form mm -hmm. uh, and and you can be in the deathless realm before you die you know like you could achieve something really grand before you die or you just go like hey notice that these things how these things arise and how they're not helpful to this experience you're having mm -hmm. you know let's let can we can we lessen the suffering by 20%. Yeah, so I think like with with the original context uh you have the buddha who has who had realized nirvana so when he's sharing the teaching it's not just the concept it's it's an overall vibration or spiritual energy that's that's coming across so he's not causing the guy to become he didn't cause the guy to realize nirvana but you kind of gave him a taste of what it's like. And then it seems like that it's like putting him within the fourfold community and it's putting him within this overall. Like if you if you look at the Mangala Sutta, you know, it talks about it's a multiple lifetime project. Uh, the fourfold Sangha is like an ecosystem. So it's like kind of putting him in the ecosystem and then giving him a pass to go forward. Um, so that even though he's not, again, he's not, attaining nibbana but at least he's got uh right view uh, <laughs> he's got right view um he's got an inkling of what's being talked about he got a whiff of it somehow um and you could say it's kind of like an initiation or a pointing out of like this witnessing self or witnessing awareness and um so even if you haven't uprooted all of your identification and attachment just being just being attuned to this witnessing self just being having that pointed out to you um can already be something significant um but yeah but if 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 you're in a culture or society where the full four you're not in the fourfold sangha and you're not in the traditional worldview that holds nibbana as possible and that um And like, yeah, if it's if it's presented within a more closed down ecosystem where it's just um, tends to be lay people without monastics. Um, and when it if you don't have someone that's got a deep level of awakening, that's uh, offering the teaching, then the whole the whole thing can be collectively closed down, I guess, or. Um, collectively, people are buying into the five baggage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dustin, you said collectively people are buying into. Um, they're buying they're buying into a more watered down presentation of the teaching. Yeah, so kind of what we had been talking about was um, reminded me of that to some degree, um, like within the like Western yogic um, thing. 
people will talk about what the word yoga means. And at, I, the translation I hear most often is union. And it becomes a very surface level, like, well, usually it's whatever way of talking about it serves my particular purpose as a teacher in this particular class right now. Um, but it does tend to be like, the best version of it is like presence with what you're actually experiencing, which is great. But like another, you know, another translation of it is yoking. And when I go through like the uh, Patanjali sutras and my exposure to the, the um, kind of fundamental Hatha yoga texts, it's actually this idea of first yoking to your experience of what isn't self like deeply experiencing that, then unyoking and reyoking to the actual thing. So this process that we have already talked about of like coming into close contact with what you're actually experiencing, but then using that as a sort of pathway um, to seeing the ways in which it isn't the thing that we thought it, what you know, or wanted it to be as far as like self basically like this is not that thing um but like how frequently and like usefully it can just be the first kind of step like you know looked at as teaching the like trying in an academic full contextual way to teach the entire perspective philosophy or you know whatever uh, depending on the context there um sure it is not the actual thing like the whole idea isn't yoking to my bodily experience right but um i mean if this guy comes to me as a teacher um knowing that this is the you know an available um kind of preliminary step that has some practical value like that's the takeaway mm -hmm. even if it's not the whole thing presented um you know uh with the full perspective yeah um yeah i mean I feel like the five aggregates is a very good map the four establishments is a very good map um it can be used as a humanistic psychology a humanistic philosophy and it works very well like that. <laughs> um, um, so I, I think this kind of goes back to you know western culture we had dogmatic christianity um and so then there was a rebellion against that and uh science existential philosophy humanism is what um rose up in reaction you could say um and so there was a critique of the supernatural um from the natural like so it's basically naturalism um as the basis to critique the dogmatic supernatural doctrine from christianity um and so then there kind of became this default naturalism um within progressive christianity and then as buddhism became interesting to um convert buddhists that wanted to get into mindfulness but they were also deeply 
wed to humanism, um, this gave them a way to be uh, religious and engage in meditation practice and engage in humanism. Um, and so it gave them like a way to, it gave them a, a direction to go. Um, but it kind of, they, it kind of kept with it this preference for naturalism and this um, critique of anything that is quote unquote supernatural. So a teaching that saying, Hey, you're, 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 there's a deeper spiritual reality that goes beyond your body and mind. Um, yeah. It's like something that's radically pointing to a spiritual dimension beyond body and mind is often conflated conflated with dogmatic Christianity and what's seen as supernaturalism and um, something that's somehow inherently dissociated or, um, you know, it's, it's trying to run away from the body or it's trying to run away from earthly experience. Um, and so then, so that, so those teachings will be rejected um, and and sometimes it'll even go as far as saying that's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha was the Buddha was in essence a naturalist teaching existential philosophy. He wasn't teaching about this kind of spiritual. T- <laughs> uh, so it just feels like we have a lot of collective baggage from the hangover that we have from dogmatic Christianity. Um, So I, I'm I actually so the theologian Paul Tillich uh, he talks about God as ground of being, um, and so he talks about you have an essential nature which is being, and then you have an existential nature which is the feeling that I'm this body and mind, and I'm going through this narrative. Um, and he said that it's it's possible to open up to this deeper spiritual ground of being. Um, so he's using Christian terminology to to point at a teaching that seems very similar to what the Buddha is teaching in this teaching. Um, but again, that that spiritual ground of being teaching uh, is not popular because it it goes against the naturalism and the humanism. Um, so it just seems like, yeah, it's it's hard for our culture to accept these direct spiritual teachings that are pointing to something deeper than the body and mind um, and, and to not just reflectively associate that with, Oh, that's spiritual bypass or that's um, we're getting back in the territory of dogmatic messed up Christianity. So yeah, yoga and mindfulness have been absorbed by, and it's it's a lot of it is the professional managerial class. I'm not going to lie, middle or upper class that they want to have their existential philosophy, they want to have their mindfulness, and they don't they don't want to they don't want a spiritual dimension that's going beyond that. Or if so, like, I mean, and this is kind of the, the way that, um, so like the kind of naturalism friendly Christianity that we get comes via Heidegger, 
and like his thing is like this methodological atheism which is what makes it respectable which is what makes it possible for Tillich to come in and basically talk super mystical stuff um but it is you know approached as if it had this like naturalistic kind of um respectability um because of the root um that it seems to have um come forward so like it's only you know it's it's available it's just available in this um kind of vetted way yeah um so we're we're a little over time but uh I did, one one kind of final thing is um okay just say you know you're you're a buddhist minister and you're working with somebody and they don't they don't care about the <laughs> <laughs> uh they're they're suffering and they want help with their suffering and teaching them hey you have this witnessing self um doesn't doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help or it doesn't um um so to me i kind of like as as those of you know me that you know my one of my health issues is lower back issues right and so um the witnessing self has helped me not take it so seriously but at the same time uh, I have I have had to put a lot of time and work in doing yoga and working with my nutrition and all kinds of things to help my back feel better, um, and so yeah, I'm I'm not in some total nibbana state where I can just ignore the pain and not do something about it. Um, so I think it's like what what we were saying before you you kind of have to read your audience read who you're working with what what are they open to what's going to help what's not going to help um yeah so i mean the danger would be somebody takes this teaching they say oh well i'm not the five aggregates uh, i'm just going to keep remembering that and then that gives them an excuse just to not do anything else you know <laughs> uh not do anything to try to take care of their body or um you know, deal with pain, deal with aging, et cetera. Um, so I think we need we need a robust toolkit that has both tools for both things. Um, and so that um, when we get into talking about the practice and we and talking about the four establishments and the sixteen exercises, um, we could start looking at how to apply those practices depending on who the person is. Um, and like you're saying, Justin, that, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with just giving someone something that helps and works for them. Um, I mean, yes, we don't want to water the tradition down, but we also, if there's an opportunity to help somebody and we have something that can help them, we should we should also try to help them. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just, I... I, you know, circling back around to um, Angelica's sort of uh, iteration that, you know, identification um, is so much of what this teaching is about, obviously, and, and that, um, you know, that balancing act between sort of the gift of being born in physical form and having these 
complex brains that lead to thought, you know, habit patterns that end in dukkha. <laughs> um, you know, like, and yet this is the 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 you know the this is the gift, right? Like, uh, if you're born in heaven, right? You know, like it's it's too nice to bother with the practice. If you're born in hell, it's too horrible the to to find the practice to be born in this human form on this planet right now and to experience bodily suffering this is um this is the gift you know um so it kind of circles back around to there is a there is a sort of you know there we could accuse buddhism of being disembodied you know in the practice and then we can also say it's extremely embodied, you know, that ultimately without this human form, there's no Buddhism, there's no, there's no availability to rebirth um, or enlightenment. So, you know, it's like, I'm not going to tell you to sit there and disidentify with what's going on physically with your body, you, you, you know, you need to take care of it, you need to be present for it. Um, because without it, there's no practice. You know, it's like that notion of the Buddha getting down to one grain of rice um, and just being, you know, in my mind, I always hear that story like, oh my God, you're so fucking exhausted. <laughs> no, you're never going to achieve enlightenment when you're starving to death. <laughs> you know, you've, you've, you've intentionally placed yourself in a hell realm. You're starving to death. And there's no, there's no, uh, you know, you, you, it's, you're well off the middle of the road. That's for sure. Off the middle, you know, the, out of the middle of the path. And um, so there's, you know, it's always this balancing act with, with identification. I'd like to quickly say a few words. I know that we're way over time, but thank you, Corey, for saying that. And I really like the addition of Dustin saying the spiral. And when I said identification, I didn't think about de-identification. So I think, you know, even though in Buddhism, we try to maybe steer away from duality. Unfortunately, in duality is where we find non-duality. So I think that it, it does come as a combo to me, this conversation. In order to identify, we have to de-identify. And in order to de-identify de or detach, we have to also reason or discern that it's not necessarily spiritual by bypass all the time, although it can be. So I'm glad John mentioned that, but I think sometimes it's also skillful means. Sometimes, just like Corey, you said, someone's suffering, you just have to bring in a notch down 20% or whatever it is. So that's a skillful mean, just like the Buddha did in this discourse. He didn't bring Nakula's father to Nirvana. He just gave a baby step. This is where you can start now. It's just this awareness, or even just the ambrosia of the Buddha telling you this awareness and then Shariputra explaining it so mm -hmm. the, the 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 final component that i wanted to add earlier was the thought of uh for me uh i heard uh cory say goal my word was intent what is what is as a dharma teacher our intent and how can we skillfully use upaya to help this person move from where they are just a little notch to the other direction and then that gives them fearlessness courage, motivation to keep on their own moving the the notch further and further to where they can find this balance of what we're talking about. So thank you.
Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning then that um, within the Samyutta Nikaya, you've got the teachings on the five aggregates, and then um, next week I'll go into the six sense bases. Um, but those are, you know, they're teaching these kind of core teachings about identification. Um, but when it gets into actual meditation practice, th- these are not the teachings the Buddha is going. That when you get into meditation, it really is the four establishments and it really is a ground up process where it's awareness of the breathing and the whole body um, and then letting go of the reactions that come up from the sensations and then aware of the heart mind as this witnessing awareness and then aware of any movement and letting go of that movement. Um, So it's more of a grounded uh, practical teaching when it gets into actual meditation practice. Um, And it is very embodied and it is very um, the opposite of spiritual bypassing, actually. Um, So it culminates in a spiritual awakening that goes beyond the body and mind, but it very much starts with the breathing in the whole body and, and a ground up process where the body is where you start and you, you're not going to get anywhere unless you start. To, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so to me, then it, it, it does get to like a core teaching of like, Oh, there's pleasant sensation. There's a habit of grabbing on there's unpleasant sensation. There's a habit of pushing it away. Um, and that no matter what situation you're in, that's a fundamental uh, teaching and practice that you can engage in to be aware of the sensations and the reactions and letting go of the reactions um, but also it's also teaching the the cultivation of wholesome states of body and mind. So um, in that process, you are you are trying to cultivate wholesome states and you're trying to let go of unwholesome states. So it, it is getting into the, the nitty gritty of working with stuff. Um, so I think it's it's later scholastic Buddhism that kind of can get overly obsessed with a more abstract philosophical discussion on the five aggregates or um, it, that stuff can get over focused on and then and then what gets missed out is oh yeah there are these very grounded yogic teachings um that are pretty straightforward and embodied um I, it's almost like you have to do the mindfulness of breathing mindfulness of the whole body um and then you get to the heart mind and then, okay, it's kind of like the cherry on the cake is, okay, you can meditate on impermanence or you can meditate on not self or you can meditate on suffering as a way to trigger Nibbana. But it's kind of like that's like the cherry on the cake that you do after you've gone through all of the other embodied work first. Um, but the kind of later scholastic stuff, they like to just jump straight to the scholastic cherry on the cake <laughs> <laughs> and then just spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, and then, yeah, then it becomes too cerebral and too, like, too wonky, I guess. Okay, cool. Uh, Corey, you have something? Yeah. No, I just, I just, when I'm, when I hear, you know, when we go into this discussion about sort of like the scholastic, um versus the more sort of yogic um you know i i just tend to think to you know i guess my 
I guess what pops up for me is, you know, the scholastic is generations of monastic practitioners, sometimes joining the monastery when they're very young um, and having a lot of time to sort of debate or teach or learn things and to get into sort of deep meditation practices. And this yogic, you know, to it, it, it in some ways is like first generation, you know, these are people who just came from the village um, or just came from, you know, some, uh, you know, generations of people focusing their attention elsewhere and they're coming to these teachings and it's very, it, you know, like it is more embodied. Um, you know, I see that sort of like division, uh, if you will, to get to get somewhat dualistic. Um, I can see this sort of division between, um, you know, a uh, sort of a uh, very trained, very focused academic institution and people, uh, you know, and, and people still very close to, um, you know, the lay, the lay world and, and, um, you know, it's, it, it, and so it's an interesting sort of, again, when we're, when we're offering the Dharma, who are we offering it to? Who, what, what, you know, uh, what is the intent? What is the service? Um, and and that is sort of, that's the skillful, you know, the aspect of sort of skillfulness that, that needs to be brought in as a teacher is sort of identifying the needs of the audience. Um, so I, I appreciate this sort of looking at these two different forms and, and maybe who they are intended for and realistically. Yeah. And, we, and similar with Taoism, you have an early yogic stage and then a later scholastic stage. Um, and yeah, over time, monasteries got developed, reading and writing got introduced. Um, monastics became scholars. They became people that were writing, you know, they were transcribing the teachings they were coming up with new teachings um and i mean i think going back to the time of the buddha people ordained for different reasons so not everybody was trying to attain nibbana and do the full-blown intensive yogic practice um but with the rise of scholasticism you definitely had a subsection of monastics that just wanted to do the more academic stuff and um didn't want to do the yogic stuff um, and, you know, we could argue there's a place for everybody and that that's a necessary function in a sense. Um, but you could also argue that over time, the tradition got too top heavy. It lost touch with this yogic roots. Um, and then, yeah, there was a whole, there was a whole cult, culture of debate and mon monastics getting highly skilled in debate and wanting to win debates because that's how they got donations. That's how they got the property. And that's also how they could lose their property if they lost a debate. <laughs> um, so it seems like they're given the chance, there's always going to be uh, people that want to just go into the intellectual side of it. Um, and I think you, you can look at the history of Buddhism as kind of these cycles of the yogic practice getting rediscovered. You know, somebody goes back in the forest or goes out into a cave somewhere and the yogic thing gets rediscovered and, um, you know, the ideal, you have a nice blending of the two. You have 
the yogic and the scholastic supporting each other. So there can be moments of a kind of happy, a happy medium between the two. Um, but there's, again, there's plenty of, there's plenty of people that will just go into the scholastic route and then just use that. They just want to stay there and it's a nice little nest. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. And I guess that's, because our culture, we have this university system. We, you know, we got rid of monasticism. We have the university system. Um, in many ways, the the university professor is a new form of priest, and um, the psychotherapist is also a new form of priest. Um, and yeah, the the yogic thing has, you know, it, it's like we're just now recovering what was this early yogic thing in Buddhism. We're just now recovering. Oh yeah, there's this early yogic thing in Taoism. Um, so I guess yeah, we we always have to be mindful of that tension between the yogic and the scholastic, and you know how can we get the best of both as opposed to getting derailed just into the scholastic. I think this is a point of contention for all faiths, really. Yeah. You know, and and something that as humans we sort of have seen to be recycling, you know, like information technology, big jumps forward in information technology, sort of always elicit this sort of a certain kind of response where the inf the information itself takes over the practice. Yeah. Um, so the footnote as soon as as soon as monastics can write footnotes, we're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. I um I need to go. This has been really wonderful. It's great to see everyone. Delightful conversation. Um, thank you all. Uh, may you be well. Cool. Thank you, Corey. Take care. I also okay. have to go. Sorry, yeah, we can I've close. Yeah. To take yeah. the dogs thank to you, beach. everybody. Thank you. Bye. Ciao. Ciao.